0: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day.
1: Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Can you hear? I've got my washing machine going down below. I don't know if it's... No, nope, can't hear it. Let me
2: know if you hear. I've got two shrieking brats from our building uh, underneath my window. Uh, okay. The parents seem to think it's endearing that they just scream instead of talking. But literally, Gosh. they don't form words. They just shriek. So let me know if you hear them. Will do. <laughs> okay. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. I'm really excited today. Uh, If you are a regular listener and if you have a brain, you would have listened to episode number 48 because it was absolutely outstanding. It got such great feedback. Uh, We talked to James Scott about Manila and uh, Alina and I are really trying to build up a great portfolio of the Pacific theatre of war um, because we're British and we tend to not look at that as much as the war in Europe. So James is back today because before he wrote his book Rampage, he did a book on on the Doolittle raid. Now, of course, we've interviewed Rich Frank about Pearl Harbor, but now we're going to find out what the American response was that, to that. So, hi, James.
0: Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me back on.
2: I'm okay. So the beaches are open now again. Have you ventured out?
0: Oh, I have. So yeah, it's uh, you know it's summertime here. It's lovely out. So uh, and after. They cooped up for several months, you got to get out. And get a little
2: break. Well, you have massive summer holidays over there compared to us. So, how many weeks in all would you have had your kids for by the time they go back in like August?
0: It, typically, it's about nine weeks that they're out of school. Uh, yeah. that about you know about the first at the end of the first week of June they go back um, the uh, first and second week of August typically. So it's about nine weekends roughly. But now we'll have had them out for like six months.
2: Wow. (laughs) Have you considered (laughs) giving anyone up for adoption yet?
0: Oh, yeah. Well, one of my friends said it best. He said, you know, when when all this social distancing is done, I'm going to need some family distancing.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So true. But let's get your mind off it. Um, Because the only exposure I've had to the Doolittle raid is that unfortunate shithousery mess that was Pearl Harbor the film and that was only so I could pervert Josh Hartnett Uh, and it was just chucked at the end wasn't it um to wrap up a truly awful storyline so we're going to learn about the actual raid from you so the 7th of December 1941 Pearl Harbor is bombed what happens how does FDR react
0: well you know the the attack on Pearl Harbor it's it's really even for Americans I think there's a sense that you know Pearl Harbor is really the, the beginning and the end of sort of the, the devastation that, that suffered in the Pacific. And it's really not. I mean, it, it, you know, not only did the Japanese attack the U.S. in Pearl Harbor, but they took Guam and they took Wake from us. Uh, they invaded the Philippines, uh, which was under siege and went, would really, you know, last all the way up until April with the fall of Bataan, the and then in May, the fall of Corregidor. Um, they took Hong Kong and Singapore from the British, the Dutch East Indies from the Netherlands, And they even went so far as to uh, launch attacks on Australia. So the news out of the Pacific was devastating, far beyond even just Pearl Harbor. Uh, So much so that really by the end of June of 1942, the Japanese really controlled about one-tenth of the world. Uh, which is a staggering amount of...
2: uh, insane. They just went on a... They went on a rampage then, didn't they?
0: They really did. I mean, if you really think about it, I mean, like 20 million square miles, seven time zones, all under the control of the Japanese. So, of course... uh, But Pearl Harbor is the one that I think really grabs the attention in the the eyes of the the world's population because it was such a devastating raid. Uh, So as the Japanese are sort of racking up these victories over America and its allies... Um, FDR, who's president at that time, of course, realizes that America is woefully ill prepared to be able to go on an immediate offensive. Uh, and he recognizes it's actually going to take uh, not just a f- weeks and months, but really much of 1942 to uh, enlist and train new troops, to build the battleships, the aircraft carriers, the rifles, the bullets, uh, and to prepare you know, America to go on the offensive. And right after the attack on Pearl Harbor and, and, and sort of as these defeats are, are sort of uh, racking up for the, jo- uh, for, the, for the Americans and victories for the Japanese, um, there's this huge outpouring of sort of American nationalism and, 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 and outrage. And, and FDR knows that that's not sustainable for the whole of 1942 while all of its work is being prepared to put America on a war footing. And he knows that he needs... Some sort of victory, some sort of iconic uh, win to be able to convince the American people in this dark time and whatnot that in the end, the U.S. will prevail and that the U.S. will win. And so he starts pressuring, literally, I mean, they're still pulling bodies out of the oily waters of Pearl Harbor and FDR starts pressuring his senior military advisors to come up with a way to strike back at Japan. And not an attack on some far-flung island in, the, in, in Japan's big Pacific Empire, but an attack directly on Tokyo. Um, so the seeds are really planted even before forty-one rolls into 1942. Of course, the big challenge facing the United States at that point was, how do you go about doing this? And the, and the reasons that was so difficult was because the U.S. lost any potential base in which to operate. You know, uh, Guam uh, is gone, Wake is gone. Philippines is under siege and will fall. Um, you know, Russia has signed a neutrality pact with the Japanese, so trying to launch a raid out of you know, from Russia wouldn't, wouldn't happen. Uh, and at the same time, of course, our aircraft carriers, you know, we only had a handful of aircraft carriers. In fact, we, unfortunately, they weren't at Pearl Harbor uh, on December 7th from Japanese attack.
2: Because that was plan so A, wasn't it, to take out your carriers?
0: Yeah, because, I mean, at that point, yeah, aircraft carriers are how you sort of protect, Project power to other, the other side. I mean, that's how you take the the fight all the way to the enemy shores, and and that was also what Admiral Yamamoto really wanted us to really wanted the, his forces to eradicate. And it was just fortuitous that America's three aircraft carriers that were based in the Pacific at that time weren't there. Uh, so we, at the time of the attack on Pearl Harbor, the U.S. had three aircraft carriers in the Pacific. We would move one additional aircraft carrier over from the Atlantic fleet, and then a new aircraft carrier, the Hornet, which was just then being uh, finished up, would then be moved over to the Pacific to join the Pacific fleet. So we would have, all told, in early 1942, five aircraft carriers assigned to the Pacific. That may seem like a lot, but the Japanese had ten. Wow. So I mean, they had, even at America's sort of peak there in early 42 of five aircraft carriers, the Japanese had double that. So the idea of sending American aircraft carriers all the way across the Pacific to launch this retaliatory strike was simply just a risk that the US couldn't, couldn't take at that time. Because you know, air carrier pl- airplanes at that time had a very small range, you know, they were single engine planes. And so they could, in order to be able to take off, make their target and make it back, you know, it's really just a matter of a few hundred miles. And that would be an extraordinary risk for for America to take with these few aircraft carriers. So the U.S. had no bases to operate from, and it was simply too risky for America to be able to launch carrier raids. And, of course, none of this reality mattered to FDR, you know, who continued. And if you look at the meeting minutes when he would get together with the senior military advisors, he continued to pressure them. Find a way to strike back in Japan. Find a way to strike back. How are we going to do it? Where are we?
2: Um, so this is where doolittle comes in who is he um and what is his role in putting this together
0: jimmy doolittle is without a doubt one of the most fascinating characters of the 20th century and he's really known for this raid that bears his name uh but he he accomplished so much more than just this raid and uh jimmy doolittle was uh, born in the late 1800s and uh He grew up, he spent his childhood partly in Alaska because his father was an unsuccessful gold prospector. And the Alaska of the early 1900s of of Doolittle's youth was like the Wild West. I mean, it was this primitive frontier. Uh, There were more saloons than grocery stores. There was no indoor plumbing. Uh, Doolittle saw one of his best friends be torn apart in the street by dogs. I mean, it was just this rough and tumble landscape. And, of course, Doolittle was this really teeny little kid. I mean, in fact, he would only end up being five feet, four inches tall in life. Uh, So much so that, for all of his military records, he would up his height two inches. He Mm. wrote five foot six on everything. So he realized if he was going to survive in this rough-and-tumble environment, he had to learn how to fight. And he actually ended up being a pretty good fighter. He would later become a professional boxer of all things and earn earn money in his, uh, his, his adolescence by fighting. He eventually moved back. Um, his parents had separated. And he moved back to California and went to school and then uh, had always had Harvard a fascination in flying. And so when World War I broke out, he enlisted and went into uh, aviation school and learned how to fly and fell in love with it on his first flight. And he ended up being such a good aviator that rather than send him over to fight in Europe, uh, the Army kept him home to train new pilots. He later said... Uh, you know, my job was essentially to make heroes, to stay back home and to do that. And it was something that really bo- bothered Doolittle. In fact, the first time he ever goes into combat is when he leads this raid in 1942. Uh, and so But Doolittle, in addition to being a really great pilot uh, when World War I ends, uh, there's all this, this interest in aviation at this point. Um, You know, pilots are trying to set speed records. They're trying to, it's the era of barnstorming. You know, they're doing uh, these daring feats and things like that. And, of course, Doolittle, the fighter and the boxer, uh, isn't going to be outdone. And so he jumps into this fray. He was the first pilot to ever fly cross-country in less than a day. And, you know, that's something that today can be accomplished in a few hours. It Uh took a little 22 hours to do it. Wow. Of course, there's no GPS back then. So he literally flew with Rand McNally roadmaps in his lab, sort of looking down and following the road patterns. That's uh, paths Across country. Uh, You know, he uh, he set speed records. Uh, He was also brilliant. He went to school. He earned his master's and his doctorate from MIT, which is, you know, one of America's top engineering schools. Um you know, so he, uh, he's also the, helped develop the artificial horizon, which is standard on airplanes even today. And he was the first pilot to ever take off, fly a set course, and land again using only instrumentation, uh, which, is, of course, is you know, how we get around today while flying at night and in storms and commercial aviation. So uh, these were all – I mean, these are just some of the many accomplishments that Doolittle had even before World War II began. So he's really – this amazing aviation pioneer. So when World War II breaks out, he actually lands, he's 45 years old at that time. And he lands as the troubleshooter for, uh, Hap Arnold, who's the head of the army air Forces. He's a mm-hmm. top, top airman. And, and he's really tight with Doolittle, their friends. I mean, he wrote one to do a recommendation letter for one of Doolittle's kids to go to the, uh, West point. So he becomes Doolittle's top, Troubleshooter, anything that you know, and so early on, he's sort of helping to figure out how to turn automotive plants into aviation plants and all that. And then, of course, Pearl Harbor breaks out, and he, one of his first assignments is to figure out how to take this fight straight to Tokyo.
2: And um, uh, talk to us about the preparation for the raid. Who decides it's going to happen, um, and w- what is their plan?
0: Well, you, the actual genesis for the raid actually didn't come from Doolittle, but it came from a, a from the Navy of all places and that, you know, they were trying to figure out how to, uh, if, you know, if, if carrier planes couldn't work and if we didn't have bases to operate, how could we make it happen? And there was a guy by the name of Francis Lowe who had been a submariner and was on the staff of um, Ernest King, who was the head of the U S Navy. And King had sent him down to check on the, on the aircraft carrier Hornet, which was finishing up at sea trials. And as he was down there, he saw aviation um, pilots, uh, Navy pilots, practicing takeoffs on an airfield marked up to look like an aircraft carrier deck. And it just had a thought. He said, what if instead of using single-engine Navy planes, what if we swapped them out for twin-engine Army bombers? And that idea was really the genesis for the raid. Uh, he then takes that idea up to his boss, who then says, why don't you run it by some of our airmen and then take it over to Half Arnold at the Army. And, of course, at that point, it lands on Hap Arnold's desk. He brings in Doolittle and he says, hey, the Navy's got this idea. What do you think of it? And Doolittle says, let me take a study of it. And, of course, Doolittle begins doing what he does best, you know, analyzing things or whatnot. And he comes back shortly thereafter and he says, I think it can happen and I think the B-25 is the airplane that can make this thing work.
2: What's the timescale on that? In um, between th- the end of Pearl Harbor and them saying, right, let's go.
0: Yeah, very quickly. I mean, Pearl Harbor happens on December 7th, and you know, this plan is being uh, brought to Doolittle in, uh, early to mid-January, and literally by, um, uh, by the end of January, they're rocking and rolling trying to get this thing figured out. Um, Doolittle seizes on the B-25 as the airplane that's going to make it happen, and the reason he picks the B-25 is because it's, it has seven feet of clearance from the tip of its wing to the, what would be the superstructure or the island on an aircraft carrier. Uh-huh. There's about, it's just enough distance that I can sort of slide by and take off. Uh, <laughs> and, and so really, and that's what it comes down to, uh, is that it's able to take off. They also realized that while it could take off, this plane would never be able to land back on board an aircraft carrier again. That it just, it, it, the structure of the plane would not handle the impact there and the arresting cable. So this would have to be a one-way mission. And they would have to literally take off, bomb Japan, and then fly on to China, to parts of free China that were out of the control of the Japanese. Now, the challenge with that is Doolittle realized that, that he needed about 2,400 miles to be able to fly to make that work. But the B-25 could only go 1,300 miles.
2: Oh Wow. So, so are these miles, the modifications they need to make to the bombers? Exactly. So okay. they would
0: then have to literally almost double the distance that these planes could fly. So in order to do that, they stripped Everything out of the bombers, uh, radios, guns, uh, you name it. And then they also then had to devise, uh, add several extra fuel tanks, uh, basically big rubber bladders uh, that could be inserted in the plane to carry extra fuel. Aviation fuel is really heavy. I mean, one gallon of aviation fuel weighs over six pounds. So if you're going to add in all that extra fuel, you've got to strip out all this weight on these planes. Um, and so that's, they begin these technical modifications at that point. Doolittle then, because the B-25 is a very new airplane, it's brand new in America's arsenal. Only a handful of squadrons are flying them. He then grabs these squadrons that are flying anti-submarine patrols out on the West Coast of the United States, has them shipped over to Columbia, South Carolina, and from there he recruits his eighty volunteers. Doesn't tell them what they're going to do. Just says, I need people to volunteer for a very dangerous mission. that's all I can tell you right now. And they all volunteered. And then he took those men down to uh, Florida to the panhandle there, which was out in the boonies. He had no prying eyes, nobody to be able to spy on Mm. them. They brought in a Navy carrier pilot to teach these army airmen the art of how to take off from an aircraft carrier. And so you have sort of two things going on at once. You've got the, you know the, the modifications to the bombers to, to be able to make them fly, I and mean, then you've got these na- a navy pilot training these army men how they can get an airplane in the sky in less than five hundred feet.
2: So, That's epic. So. How how much of a change is that for them? What's the
0: difference? It's tremendous. I mean, these, these yeah, these guys are used to two three thousand you know feet to take off, and they've suddenly got to be able to get these planes. Uh, in the sky. In fact, the first plane that would take off an aircraft carrier had just 467 feet to use.
2: I do remember that in that rubbish film that that was a big thing when they did the Doolittle raid at the end that they dropped off the edge of that carrier and everyone held their breath.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's really, you know, and there, there's some advantages to taking off an aircraft carrier. I mean, the, the carriers sort of turn into the wind, so you increase the amount of, you know, wind that's coming across the deck plus there's the speed of the aircraft carrier they're going they're going top speed at that point you know over 30 miles an hour so all that sort of helps give the airplanes lift but it's still an incredibly daunting view when you look out <laughs> first <guy laughs> so that's not warm. the only
2: daunting thing for them when do they find out that it's a one-way mission
0: yeah so all of this and this is one of the things i find so amazing today is that you look okay from the time that from the time of the attack on Pearl Harbor until the time that the, the aircraft carrier Hornet leaves uh, San Francisco with these men on board, it's just 16 weeks. I mean, wow. which is an incredibly short amount of time to put together this joint operation between the Navy and the Army to modify airplanes, to train these pilots how to fly, you know, to put together the Navy's task force, you know, and they're going to have to steam 5,200 miles across the Pacific in total radio silence. Uh, And they did all that in just, you know, four months. That's the thing, uh, isn't it? There's a huge
2: difference between the mission and the raid. So explain to us the mission, which begins on the 1st of April, and take us up to the day before the raid, because that's over two weeks, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it is. And so, you know, the thing about this, okay, so they decide that they're going to use the, the Hornet, to transport Doolittle and his 16 bombers across the Pacific. Okay, now these these army planes are so large that they can't fit in the air, in the aircraft uh, carrier's um, elevator to move them down to the hangar deck. So they have to literally tie them down on top. And uh, but the challenge is 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 as this it's a task force, and it's gonna you know it's gonna send. Carriers along with fuelers, um, uh, oiling ships, and destroyers and whatnot to be able to protect them. If they run into any trouble out there, they can't move these aircraft, um, these Army bombers out of the way in order to bring up fighter planes to protect the, the ships. Because you know, the, well, these, these Navy ships are all that's left in the Pacific Fleet, really. Um, and so they're going to have to send a second aircraft carrier, the Enterprise, along for cover. So two of America's five aircraft carriers Mm -hmm. are going to have to make this journey all the way to the enemy's backyard.
2: And this Uh, is them going as far as they possibly can before they get into Japanese water.
0: Absolutely. Now, Doolittle wanted to be able to get his, to get these carriers within 400 miles of Japan Hmm. and 400 miles. He figured he had enough uh, fuel that they could take off. They could bomb Japan and they could then make it across the East China Sea into. China and land there where they had some primitive runways set up there that were going to receive them. And at that point they would then make their way into uh, deeper into China and, uh, and those bombers would become part of the um, uh, forces there fighting against the Japanese. Uh, he'd set sort of 650 miles at the outside maximum mm. that they could take off and still accomplish their mission and have enough fuel to be able to reach it. So they're going to have to literally steam 5,200 miles across the Pacific, and hope that nowhere along the way do they run into any stray merchant ships, any Japanese patrol planes, submarines, anything that might spoil this secret. And so what they do is they pick a route that goes across the northern Pacific. It's really a very similar route to what the Japanese took with the attack on Pearl Harbor. Because this that time of year, it's gonna be cold, rough weather. I mean, anybody in their right mind is gonna avoid those seas those reasons and they hope that that will give them the added protection they need to be able to make it to Japan. Um, and so of course the Japanese have you know they they were not early believers in radar like the United States and so Admiral Yamamoto who's the architect of the attack on Pearl Harbor and was the head of the combined fleet he because he, he knew that the Japanese failure to destroy America's aircraft carriers was going to come back to haunt them. And that fear really grew into an obsession for him so much so that he advised one of his geisha friends to move all of our property outside of the city. He would uh, demand daily weather reports over Tokyo and his aides said only on days when it was cloudy or rainy, you know, bad days for bombing, did he appear to be relieved uh, because he knew that the uh, America, Uh, was going to come, those carriers were going to do some sort of strike back, and he was terrified they were going to come for Tokyo. So what he did is he devised a system in which they parked a whole bunch of picket boats anywhere from a few hundred miles to a thousand miles off the Japanese coast, basically forming a ring all the way around Japan. The idea being that any inbound American task force would run into these picket boats and they would then be able to radio, Hey, the Americans are coming and give the mainland an opportunity to prepare, to fight back against these aircraft carriers. And so uh, the United States wasn't aware of that at the time. And so as these as this task forces is steaming across the Pacific, you know, they're about to literally run into this defensive net, if you will, that uh, Adway Yamamoto has parked off of Japan. Out.
2: How do these guys spend the 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 airmen the two weeks steaming across the Pacific towards total uncertainty and this uh, like almost kamikaze mission, but this like this dangerous mission?
0: Yeah, so these guys you gotta remember when they get all that, that aircraft carrier, they don't know where they're going still. Doolittle still has now they all have an idea it's going to involve an aircraft carrier and whatnot. And, you know, and, uh, but they're not sure. They're, a lot of them are thinking they're going to, the, to help out the Philippines. And that the Philippines at that point, you know, Bataan has not yet fallen. And so they're thinking, hey, this is going to be a mission somewhere over there, or maybe Australia somewhere, you know, but in the Pacific, but not, not a strike on Tokyo. So only when they're at sea does it, is it broadcast over the loudspeaker that this, this task force is bound for Tokyo. And at that point, this huge cheer goes up. I mean, people inside the mess deck are patting each other on the back. I mean, this is an opportunity to fight back, to take the battle directly to the Japanese. And so they're all super excited. So as they're steaming across the Pacific, of course, and they're getting closer and closer to the, uh, the enemy's mainland, that initial uh- excitement starts giving way to apprehension and fear. And throughout, and, and inside the radio rooms on these on these uh, carriers and on the escort ships, radio men are hunched over their receivers 24 hours a day, monitoring Japanese communications because they're desperate to know if there's any traffic about whether or not they've been picked up or not. And, of course, Doolittle at this point, you know, the the weight of this entire mission is literally, you know, 10,000 sailors' lives are at risk. You know, his airmen and aircraft carriers are all resting on the shoulders of this 45-year-old lieutenant colonel. And the chaplain on board, the Hornet, sees him one night. and He's outside on deck, and he's just pacing from rail to rail. I mean, the weight of it just hanging on top of him.
2: It's insane. So the raid is due to happen the following day, but before the mission goes ahead, something happens.
1: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkled down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door.
0: Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter.
1: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So what is it?
0: Yeah, so they uh, so the, the do little raiders. You know, they're, they're hoping to get within 4 to 650 miles. And they're actually about 1,000 miles out from Tokyo and they're they're looking at the radar, and they start seeing blips. And these blips are the picket boats that Admiral Yamamoto has put out there, this early warning system designed to catch them. And they they detect them at night, and so rather than turn back or whatnot, they decide, we're gonna try to thread the needle. We're gonna try to literally weave these huge American warships under the cover of darkness between these picket boats. Uh, Because at this point, literally every hour, Every mile matters. I mean, they have got to get Doolittle and his men as close as possible to the Japanese mainland. Uh, but of course, daybreak on the morning of April 18th, 1942, they're spotted. Uh, the carriers immediately go into action. The horses- the combatants immediately go into action, open fire. Uh, planes start bombing these picket boats. The other ships start pounding them with uh with guns. And they're able to destroy these three picket boats, uh, but not before they're able to radio that the Americans are coming. And we've picked up on those communications, so we know the cat's out of the bag, that Japanese are, have been alerted and whatnot. The challenge, of course, is there's still more than 800 miles from Japan at this point. Remember, Doolittle was 400 to 650 miles where he needed to be, 650 miles being the absolute outside maximum. He's more than 800 miles out at this point. So if he takes off at this point, it's a virtual suicide mission. They may be able to bomb Tokyo, but they are not going to have enough fuel to make it across to China, and they're going to go down in shark-infested waters that are off the Chinese coast. So what does Doolittle do at this point? I mean, America Oh, is
2: he's <laughs> that is insane.
0: Yeah. I mean, America has invested so heavily to reach this point. You know, they've trained these men, they've put together this huge task force. They have sent them all the way here to the enemy's back door. And now all that surprise is spoiled uh, and they're too far out. But Doolittle, you know, he's, he's a fighter. He's a boxer. He's, he's going to launch, isn't he? He's, he's, he climbs in that first plane, you know, and they, they throttle up those engines. He looks out that cockpit window. And of course, it's a stormy weather that morning. You know, it's the waves are crashing over the bow, sea sprays coming up on the deck of a hornet. And he looks out that cockpit window and he has just 467 feet that separate him from that cold Pacific water.
1: Oh you know, signaling God.
0: on the deck, starts circling his, you know, waving his flag in circles, you know, signaling doolittle to throttle all the way up. You know, and 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 literally at about 8 a.m. that morning. He releases the brakes and that plane starts rolling down that aircraft carrier deck. He goes past 50 feet. He goes past a hundred feet, 200 feet. Uh, one of the guys on board, the uh, one of the other airmen watches this. He says himself, he says, there's no way he's going to make it. Literally do little gets to the end of that, of the flight deck and vanishes into the sea spray and whatnot. They all think he's crashed and his plane's going down. And it's sort of this collective holding of the breath, if you will. And then, off the front of the bow, you see his plane rise up over the uh, the front of the Hornet, and this every Navy sailor, every airman who's crowded out there watching, this huge cheer just erupts on board this carrier deck, and uh, so loud, in fact, that the mission's doctor says that they should have heard it in Tokyo.
2: <laughs> That's insane! I, he's just a boss going out in the first plane as well, isn't he?
0: Oh, you know, he's just—I mean, Doolittle's just a badass. I'm sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> he's just a, I mean, everything he's done in his yeah. career and everything is really built up to this just amazing moment on April 18th. And, of course, that cheer, that emotion, I mean, it just it, it ignites those other air crews, you know, the, the passion. And then one after the other, literally, uh, these planes just rumble right up into the sky.
2: No way! It's like, do you know what? Now I'm hearing you say this, Alec Baldwin's so badly cast in the film.
0: Oh, it totally is, isn't he? <laughs> like maybe
2: young Alec Baldwin, like, hun- what? Well, no, sorry, the uh, yeah, the rock, Red October, October <laughs> Alec Baldwin, but not fat Alec Baldwin.
0: Dirty rock, Alec Baldwin.
2: No. <laughs> <laughs> no, oh, he is badass. So talk us through the raid.
0: Yeah. So the uh, so at this point, you know, they've got this long four-hour flight in. Uh, from there, and uh, and they're literally just flying due west, and they're flying super low, just right above the wave tops as they're coming in, and uh, and and of course, you know, you, I, I often think like, what's going on in the minds of these young men, you know, because they're taking off, you know, they know that the Japanese have been alerted, they know that they're you know likely not going to have enough fuel, I mean, and yet they've got this just crazy long flight ahead of them. And uh, and even before they even get to Japan, they've got four hours just droning away. The B twenty five is a super loud airplane. I mean, it's just
2: this uh, is like reminiscent of Bomber Command, isn't it? Heading out over Europe. And oh, absolutely.
0: Yeah. And so they come in. So these pilots come in, and you know they're they're aiming for Tokyo. The majority of them are going to go to Tokyo, but a few of them are going to hit Nagoya, Kobe, uh, you know, other industrial cities. And so they come in and they it, and they fly across. The, uh, the Bozo Peninsula coming into Japan. Of course, and it's the first greenery these guys have seen in weeks because uh, everything's been nothing but grays and blues. Uh, let's see. They come in, they fly over beaches, um, they fly over baseball games, a handful of kids on one of the beaches actually threw rocks at one of the planes. You know, then they come in over Tokyo and, 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 and one of the bombers, they could see the muddy moat that encircled Emperor Hirohito's palace. And of course, you know, they're waiting for this, you know, to come in and find 300 Japanese fighters all in the air and whatnot. And there is there are some planes up and things like that. But surprisingly, there's not nearly the opposition of these men in fear. And the reason being, of course, is that the Japanese, they thought that the Americans would take another day to steam in close enough. They had no idea that they were going to use long-range bombers that could take off so much farther out at sea. So they assumed that the carriers would have to come from 1,000 miles out into, you know, three or 400 miles out. So they thought they had 24 hours to get ready. And so in many ways, the element of surprise still holds with them because of the unorthodox setup of this mission. So they come in and they bomb, you know, they go after, you know, munitions factories and steel mills, and um, shipyards and whatnot. Um, and and they're, they're able to come in and get out um, without with very little damage, actually. A handful of the bombers got some flak damage, but none of them are shot down. Um, one of the planes is really low on gas. And so rather than go to China, um, they, direct, they decide to fly directly over Japan and go to Russia. And there they end up landing in, in Vladivostok. And they're interned for uh, about 13 months by the Russians. Um, the other 15 bombers... Actually, um, they then, you know, after they successfully make, bomb their objectives, they go back out to sea to throw the Japanese off, and then uh, they go to the south and they go all the way down around Japan, and then they cross over to China. At that point, point. and uh, of course, the uh, as they're flying over to China, of course, the fuel runs out, and they're still out at sea, and uh, you know, they're looking at fuel gauge, fuel lights on, all this. And, um, and uh, suddenly they get this tailwind that comes in behind them and just blows them across. They literally, one of the Raiders later said it best. It was the hand of heaven helping them across.
2: That's insane.
0: And, uh, and they look out the cockpit windows and they, they start seeing that the water starts turning from blue to brown and it indicates mud and sediment. So they're getting close to land. And so this huge sense of like oh my gosh we're actually gonna make it we're gonna be able to tell the world about this awesome mission you know starts to hit these guys and then the weather totally deteriorates Oh no rain clouds all this kind of stuff and of course you know here they are low on fuel flying into a country that you know they don't know anything about they're aiming for these primitive gravel runways that are tucked between 10,000 foot tall mountains and they're coming in and it's getting dark And the weather is totally deteriorating. So what are they doing? You know, what are they going to do at this point? The majority of them decide they're going to go up as high as they can, try to get over the mountains and bail out. Yeah. Handful of these guys decide they're going to try to set down on beaches Mm -hmm. uh, or crash land on the water uh, rather than bail out. And so, uh, uh, and this is the, the, um, this point, three of the raiders are killed actually, Uh, they, uh, two of them drown, and one of them died somehow during bailout. Potentially at his head mm. uh, on the plane bailing out, but he's found uh, near the wreckage of the plane. And so, uh, but the rest of them all bail out, it's scattered over about 400 square miles of China. And of course, these are areas. You know, Japan has invaded China and has control of a lot of these sort of coastal port areas and whatnot. So they're bailing out, and of course now you're they're going to have the Japanese army in China hunting them and chasing after them.
2: Is there an element as well if they come face to face with people and do they know if they're Chinese or Japanese?
0: No, and, you know, and that's the thing you gotta remember. These guys, um, so many of these young men had never been yeah. outside their counties, much less their states. And you know, here they are on their first mission, bailing out over China. And you, know, you look at China today and you see all the steel and glass high rises and you know, these mega cities and whatnot. But where these guys were back then was an incredibly rural, primitive environment. And, uh, you know, they were bailing out. And, and these guys, one of, the, one of the raiders said, yeah, I just figured I'd bail out. I'd, walk, you know, I'd land, I'd go find the nearest gas station. I'd call somebody to come get me. Like, <laughs> <and culturally, laughs> uh, no. like, like you know, they, where they were going to be landing, you know. And, and, and they all said it was kind of like they'd bailed out and gone back in time. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, it's going to be a slight farm.
2: culture shock, isn't it? Um, so how many of them do, how, what are the casualties?
0: Yeah, so there are you know, 80 raiders total. Uh, three are killed at this point, um, and eight of them are captured by the Japanese.
2: And what about, you've got missing guys as well, haven't you?
0: Yeah, they're all kind of scattered. And so, you know, Doolittle, of course, lands, and he, he within 24 hours, is able to link up with his crew. You know, they all bail out, and they're able to link up. And then um, at this point, you know, because the Japanese army is going to be coming in, looking for them, they're, they're trying to make it to Chungking, which is China's wartime capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Dougal's desperate for information and for days. He doesn't know where all his crews are. And he's convinced that this mission is an absolute failure. You know, they, they lost all their airplanes. Uh, he doesn't know where his men are. I mean, he's really, uh, he's really upset about it. Um, and so he's, you know, information starts coming in, you know, through, uh, through other sources like Chinese guerrillas and villagers start sort of bringing them in So slowly, but surely, he starts rounding up his men and they start moving them all to Chung King. And that's when they realized that two of the crews had been captured. Uh, and so they lost three men you who know, died and then eight others end up in the you know, hands of the
2: Japanese. Um, what about the damage caused? What are the casualties on the Japanese side?
0: Yeah, they, you know, it, um, in the, about 150 people are killed. Uh, several hundred are wounded. A number of buildings are destroyed. I mean, you know, it does. uh, If you really, and of course, it's important to remember. I mean, Tokyo is huge. It's spread out over 200 square miles. Okay, it's a it's a massive. I think it's the third largest city at that point in the world, behind only like London and New York. Mm. So, I mean, 16 bombers, you know, each carrying just a handful of bombs is really just going to be a pinprick. I mean, it's not going to do, and particularly when you compare it to the latter part of World War II, uh, when we would send, you know, 500 bombers, you know, with incendiaries, and burn up 16 square miles in a, in a single raid in a night. So it's really just a pinprick. It's but a statement, it, isn't it? It has a huge psychological effect for the Japanese, and because at this point, you have to remember, Japan's military, which is pretty much controlled everything, has been telling the Japanese people, you know, we're. You know we're amazing. We take, you know. We, their newspapers actually carry articles saying it would be easy for them to invade and take California. I mean, there's just all this nationalism and this pride and whatnot, and the enemy is just you know all but totally defeated. And then here, just a few months after Pearl Harbor, the enemy's bombers are in the skies over the Imperial Palace, and it's a total slap in the face to the Japanese military and it's a psychological blow to the people. And it makes the Japanese people question what, what, what kind of information are we getting? You know, of course, in a totalitarian state like Germany or like Japan, you know, the idea that, Citizens are going to revolt, as we later learned throughout the course of World War II, was was far fetched. I mean, the, the power, the governmental military power, is such that it's really keep the pressure on the people. But it is sort of a wake up call, and a psychological blow. And of course, the euphoria in the United States is tremendous. I mean, of course, you know, hear America is its defeat after defeat after defeat, and then suddenly, in American planes are in the skies over the enemy's capital. I mean, it's just it's electrifying for the American public. I mean, um, to give you an example, to Doolittle comes back and he ends up on a uh, war bond drive. I mean, and a signed war bond poster for Jimmy Doolittle fetched like $4 million in 1942. I mean, that's the equivalent of more than $50 million today for that's a signed insane. poster. I mean, a town in Missouri changed its name to Doolittle in his honor. I mean, you can go today to Doolittle, Missouri.
2: Oh, That's so going to be one of my road trips. Uh, destinations, yeah, yeah, mad yeah. road trip destinations
0: yeah I mean so these guys become just like total celebrities you know as a result of this because I mean it is a total daring I mean I mean and, and every raider would tell you it was not a suicide mission we don't think of ourselves here as I an mean, incredibly hung, humble gentlemen, mm. but you know it was a suicide mission when you're a thousand eight hundred miles out and you're taking off knowing you don't have enough fuel I mean just because you survive it doesn't make it not a suicide mission. No. Did you meet
2: any of the Raiders when you were doing your book?
0: I did. Yeah. You know, and, um, there were, there were only, uh, I think seven of them still alive. And I was working on the book and I had the the great privilege of meeting and befriending several of them. Um, In fact, we just lost our last Raider recently, Dick Cole, who was Jimmy Doolittle's co-pilot. And he was about 103.
2: Oh, wow. He was one of the
0: old guys on that mission. He was Uh sat next to Jimmy Doolittle at those controls. And, uh, And Dick was just an incredibly warm, uh, funny, uh, fine gentleman, Um, you know, and he would still all the way up literally until his death would go speak to rotary clubs and air shows and schools. I mean, I mean years after he had earned the right to just retire from public life, he still did it. And he always said he did it, not, not for himself, but for Doolittle to keep alive the legacy of, jimmy doodle and this mission and uh and so in fact dick is uh they're gonna his his burial is going to be the september uh the end of august in Arlington. Mm -hmm. so
2: um just quickly then so tactically it does what it can morally um or morale wise uh it's huge Mm -hmm. strategical not really it's not what it's for in the first place is it it's not designed to bring japan to its knees
0: no but it does have a byproduct of it that is that is tr- has a tremendous effect on the war yeah admiral yamamoto who's convinced that the attack on pearl harbor was not that successful because america's aircraft carriers had not been destroyed is has been desperately trying to find a way to lure america back into a big sea battle so that he can finish the job that his forces failed to do in hawaii and that is destroy those aircraft carriers and he originally wanted to go back and hit Hawaii again, but uh, the, army would, the Japanese army would never like that. So he had set his sights on Midway. And Midway is a tiny windswept coral atoll about 1,200 miles from Oahu. And it was home at that time to an American airfield and also a submarine base. Um, and he, Yamamoto knew that this was a, essentially, in the eyes of the Americans, a priceless piece of Pacific real estate. And that if they attacked that, America would have no choice but to bring those aircraft carriers back into direct battle and Yamamoto could finish the job uh, and and, and sink them. The challenge was, not only did he get pushback uh, from the Army, but even inside the Navy. Uh, And he's desperately trying to make this sales pitch, of course, about why it's important to go to Midway when Jimmy Doolittle appears in the skies over Tokyo. And at that point, all the opposition to his plan for Midway vanishes. If America's aircraft carriers can hit Tokyo, then they are still a threat. Yamamoto is right. They must be destroyed. Midway is green-lighted. And, of course, that battle in June 1942 ends an astonishing disaster for the Japanese. They lose four aircraft carriers in 24 hours. I mean, imagine that. Four aircraft carriers destroyed in a day.
2: That is insane. And,
0: yeah, and the U.S. loses one. Uh, but it really balances the, 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 the playing field in the Pacific at that point. You know, it really levels things out. And that's, that's really the turning point, I mean, the fulcrum on which the balance of power in the Pacific changes. And you follow that up, of course, with Guadalcanal uh, later that year, which just chews up so much of Japan's forces and pilots and whatnot. And they're in Japan then at that point from the rest of the war is on the defensive.
2: And then that's yes. when they get to Manila and they have to, everyone has to go and buy your book on that as well.
0: Exactly. And I'm working on a book on the firebombing now of Tokyo. So just yeah. to sort of bring it all back around.
2: You are but the it, king of the Pacific.
0: <laughs> no, not at all. But it, uh, it, it but it really, so, and that's an unintended consequence of this hmm. raid of product, but one that works very much in favor of US forces.
2: Why are the results of the mission so devastating for the Chinese?
0: Well, you know, the Japanese uh, are just, they're they're outraged over this mission. And of course they want to eradicate these airfields where the Americans went to try and land in China to prevent them from ever being used again. But they also want to punish the Chinese. And of course they've been at war with China for a long time now, but they want to come in and they want to teach them a lesson. So they launch a retaliatory campaign in the summer of 1942. That is just horrific. They come in and they use uh, bacteriological warfare in the form of plague, anthrax, cholera. Uh, they, they literally come in, they bring incendiary squads and they burn up entire villages. They threw entire families in wells, they, uh, they raped women. I mean, it's really just a brutal campaign um, that leads to an estimated 250,000 civilian deaths. That's so the Chinese really pay a pretty horrific price. Uh, for this, for this operation, it's horrific, and, yeah. isn't and it? it's a part of the story too that really hadn't been explored as much until recently. And uh, in part, you know, um, the, you know, no, there were no American intel. The first American intelligence officer got to that part of China in October of 1942, so long after it's really happened. But you know, when I was researching the book, I discovered these missionary records up in the archives at DePaul University in Chicago because there were a lot of American missionaries in this part of it. And those records were a goldmine for research. I mean, they had, I mean, diaries, letters, photographs. They even had motion picture footage of one of the crashed little bombers, which is amazing. First time we'd ever seen that.
2: That is insane. Uh,
0: They also had uh, even the the property damage reports that they used for their insurance companies, for their insurance claims, because they lost 31 of their parishes. And so these records really illuminated what it was like, this destruction, this violence toward the civilians on the ground uh, in China afterwards. So, and, that, and that's a big part of the story.
2: Absolutely. Um, let's just end the story with the man himself, though, because um, yeah. he is a legend. Tell us what happens to Doolittle after the raid, after the war.
0: Of course, you know Jimmy Doolittle. Um, he gets promoted, and he, he actually skips the rank of full colonel and is uh, and is made a general, regular general. He then, uh, he's he's also uh, awarded the Medal of Honor, which is America's highest award for heroism. Uh, And and after his, you know, the PR rollout and the uh, war bond drive and all that, he ends up fighting in Europe uh, with the Eighth Air Force and has a really big effect on the uh, war against Germany and the skies there. Uh, In fact, he, his the way he Jimmy Doolittle had been a fighter pilot early on too. And mm. so the way he sort of changed out fighter tactics, uh, in the war against Germany, he really thinks is one of his most important contributions to that war. And then at the very end of the war, he's brought back over to the Pacific. Uh, but the war at that point really pretty much over. Curtis LeMay's firebombing campaign, um, is, is really winding down at that point. And so Doolittle kind of comes in really just in the last few weeks of it all. And so, uh, but he but I think it makes it to a three star general at that point, point. and um so yeah, that's kind of kind of where it all wraps up. One thing I'll add that, uh, about Doolittle, and I think it's important too is you know, this relationship that he had with these eighty men mm. something that carried on for so long and uh, i mean they, they these raiders uh became a fraternity uh you know they they got together every year with the exception of two years, once during Korea, once during Vietnam for the rest of their lives to celebrate this mission and to remember their fallen uh, brothers and whatnot. And there's this really great quote I came across when I was researching the book and that, you know, Dubu was asked, he's like, you know, what was it about these men? You know, you were, you were a general, you served over all these men throughout, yeah. World War II. you know, what was it about these men? And he said, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, it's not that, I loved any of those other men any the less. It's that I just loved these boys more. Yeah. And I just thought that was such a great line for for Doolittle. It's an
2: incredible story. Thank you so much for coming on to share it with us. Uh, It's just been as epic as Manila, but slightly less depressing.
0: Yeah, no, this is a more <laughs> horror story, yeah Yeah,
2: definitely we had to get you back to have a bit more fun um it's still war <laughs> but it's not manila wow uh, that one really did move people um that was horrible uh, but not not having you on but the story itself was horrible so thanks so much for coming on to share another with us
0: absolutely thanks again for having me
1: join us tomorrow when owen Reeves will be with us uh, cause it's about time we headed back to ancient Greece, and he's going to be talking to us about war in ancient greece uh, it's a really interesting chat actually because we looked at remembrance as well and how the roots of how we remember war are really found that far back that was really fascinating talk also don't forget to get involved in our greatest britain debate we well i hate the results of the 2002 poll most of my beef concerned oliver cromwell being in the top and I think David Beckham in the top 20. So we've reignited the debate. You can now, uh, there are polls all over off uh, timeline on Twitter. There's also a link to an online poll where you can just vote for everybody um, in all the categories at the same time. There's four categories up so far. Uh, Have fun with it. Nominate people if they're missing. Uh, I don't want to hear any complaining about people not on the list. We are not experts in all fields. If someone's missing, tweet about it. Uh, Everyone who likes your tweet, those likes will count as votes. So you can campaign away for someone if they're not on the list and you want to see them present.
2: There now follows a public service announcement.
0: I'm Horatio Hornblower and I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until to the little people in the talking box Signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you, both.